I want to welcome you to this teaching moment from Generations Christian Church. My name is Johnny Scott. I'm the senior pastor here at Generations. And one of my mentors told me long ago, as very young in ministry, he told me, so Johnny, the, the job of preaching, the job of a preacher at a local church is to whet the appetite of all, everyone in the congregation for the word of God. I really hope that in these next few moments as we dive into a text and see how God's word is alive and active, that one thing happens, that you get hungry for the Lord. And here's what happens in, in that process. Uh, G- Jesus is going to have you pour yourself out so he can pour himself into you. See, the less of ourselves we have, the more room, the more capacity we have in our lives for God to pour in. It's someone that's completely full of themselves that says, I'm not hungry for God. To get hungry for God, the first thing you've got to do is pour out everything that you have so you're an empty vessel waiting to be poured into. That's my prayer for you as we walk into this teaching time, whether you're going to listen to it on a podcast or you're catching up in the week, uh, wherever you're at during this moment, would you become lesser so that God can become greater in you. It's going to give you joy and you're going to get more from this teaching time if that's your mindset as you walk into this. You know, one other thing I want to tell you before we dive into this teaching is this. Uh, I, I grew up a kid going to uh, the local church. It was a local church with a, a youth pastor and a group of elders and volunteers at that church that transformed my life and really one of the, the deepest, darkest times of my story. And I still believe that the local church is God's plan for the salvation of the world. So if you are a, consider yourself a, a vital part of Generations Christian Church, and maybe you're on vacation with your family and you're going to watch online or you're, you're catching up, doing a workout, I, I want to say this. Make sure that you're involved. Make sure you're involved in church because you can get content from so many places. But what God wants for you is to be a part of a local church where you're serving and you're giving and you're pouring into what God is doing there because there's more for you than just hearing a message. And there's going to be something, I'm sure, great in this message that the Spirit of God is going to use to transform your life. But you're missing out on a larger part if you're not really involved. And so if you're not in close proximity to Generations Christian Church and you're enjoying this teaching and it's being meaningful in your life, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Praise God for that. We're so excited to be able to bless you in this way. But I would, I would encourage you, find a church around you that you can serve and give at because that's God's ultimate plan is for all of us to be a part of the church because that's the bride that he's coming back for one day. Thanks for being with us today and may God use this teaching to bless your life. Life is a journey filled with great adventures and burdened with deep sorrows. Some moments feel like they will never end, while others, while others are just the blink of an eye. This great journey we find ourselves on leaves us asking questions over and over again. Does he care? Does he have a plan for my life? Is he listening? Is he here? Is he? Jesus.
morning, church. Good morning to everyone that's online. Man, those are the questions uh, as we begin uh, this series this year that we're diving into. Man, the, the most profound, deep, like gut questions of our entire life. Who is Jesus and where is, where is he at and what does he think about stuff and how is he active in my life? We're, I'm, I'm pumped about this series. It kind of goes right along uh, with what we're calling the whole church to do, which is to spend some time with Jesus, getting to know him every single day. We've got the Quest 52 book, which is going to be coming this week. You can get it on Amazon, Quest 52. It's an opportunity for you to spend 15 minutes with Jesus every single day, and then you, you get some of those answers. You, you, you can know this. It's not a secret. It's not veiled. He is available and present. And so I'm totally pumped about this series to start the year off with such a clear focus on the person of Jesus, who he is and what he said. Now I do want to tease a little bit. I'm excited about, uh, we've got a series coming up on family. That's going to be great. It's a good time of year to kind of do that after we just came through the holidays, you know, do a little inventory on family. And then we're going to be doing a series called Unoffendable. Uh, because that's so perfect for our culture today because we're all offended at everything all the time. I'm offended that you don't laugh harder at that. I'm, see, there we go. Uh, so, but Jesus is, is we're, we're diving in and we are going to look at um, kind of a, a war room today. I want to get your mind going on this. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a history buff. Uh, there, there, are, there are places, there are places I want to go and explore because the world was changed by some of these places. I mean, there is a, a war room in London, uh, actually Churchill, when he got to this room, he specifically said he showed up for the first time in 1940 in May. And he declared, this is the room from which I will direct the war. 115 cabinet meetings were held in the cabinet war rooms. And you can tour it today. It's crazy. They've got like the same phones that were used. Just imagine the information that was coming into that room in the early 40s as the whole world was at war. Anything in any theater was happening. The whole world was changed as the Normandy invasion was planned in that very room and then carried out where lines of countries are drawn today. Our political scenario we're now all happened because of that one very, and it's small, a very small little room that had big consequences. I love that you can even see Clementine. This is uh, Churchill's wife's room. She had like a little quarters there, perfectly preserved, because I imagine she spent a few nights in, late, in the late hours where she's like, forget it, I'm just sleeping here. And as you can tell, it's not exactly very posh, right? I mean, it's, it's a little, little, little crude room, but it's all there and preserved. There's another room that is perfectly preserved for us. I mean, I, I love World War II history because of its implications, but there is another room that is called the upper room. It is the war room of all war rooms. I mean, you can go and you can visit the actual site uh, where we think, we're doing archaeology, we know where the house of Caiaphas was at. And we know that the upper room, the side of the city that Christians have thought for 2000s of years, this place was located. And it's so important. This exact war room is so important because John's gospel, if you take everything John said, 25% of it was said on this location, this place, this room, this war room, this one critical heated night, 25% of what John's gospel has to say to us comes from this room. This is a 12th century kind of basilica that's been rebuilt over the place where we think this exact room was at. If you kind of get to this part of town just outside the old city gates of Jerusalem, 
you can see on a map kind of the important places of this few hours that center around the, ro- the war room. On the bottom left-hand side of your screen, you can see the, the historical spot that the upper room was most likely located. This is where the apostles would have met, maybe even in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God came. This, is, this upper room was big enough to hold them and a few other people. And you can see right next to that is the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas, he's the leader of the Sanhedrin during the time of Christ's life. He would have been the one that questioned Jesus on this very night, right after this war room experience. Very close. The, the archaeology that we have for the house of Caiaphas, I think, is very, very good. I've been to that place. I can't imagine another spot. And there's a valley... It's about a mile and a half walk. If you were to take a mile and a half walk and leave the upper room, which is what they had this war room experience, and then Jesus and the 12, they leave the upper room, they walk down to the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. And halfway up the Mount of Olives is a garden called Gethsemane. It's a place that Jesus would frequent often. You can stand in the garden Gethsemane and look over the valley of Kidron and you can see the temple up on the mountain. Everything that was going to happen on this night vaulted from the war room and the war room experience. And we can go there right now. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. I think when Jesus utters these words and the few pieces of information that he gives in this war room, there's a a moment, an extended period of silence. I don't think the next questions come. I I think the weight of the room is just heavy. And have you ever had crushing news? You think about that that phone call you get, that, that information you receive where everything stops and time slows and you just sit in the reality of, is this true in this war room? Just to review a couple of things that have been dropped on them that created this awkward silence, this hushed moment would be, first thing is, Jesus looks at one of the leaders, Peter of the 12, would be the most brash. He's the first to jump in and say something perfect or something totally dumb. Okay, that's Peter, right? And he he would be perceived as a leader of the group, no doubt. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are going to denounce me. And that's hard. They're supposed to be having a Passover meal. They're, They're having a few quiet moments with Jesus in a week that has been a very hectic week. They're, they're meeting in secrecy because Jesus knows that the ruling authorities are trying to find him, to kill him. And so in this moment, this quiet moment where they're finally alone, Jesus in a meal looks at it and says, hey, by the way, guys, Peter is going to denounce me. Hard news. Next hard piece of news. Then Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me completely. One of you is a traitor. I mean, that's, a, that's rough news. I mean, talk about, we're just supposed to be celebrating Passover. It's been a hard week, Jesus. They're not aware that they're not, they're not just hours, they're moments away from the end. The hardest information in this moment that's been given them is this, this piece that we just read where Jesus says, 
it's done. I'm leaving. This party as we know it, what we've experienced for the last three years, it's over. All of that information, Peter's denouncement, one of them is a traitor, and Jesus saying, I'm leaving you, is the crushing weight in this moment. And Peter says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I promise you. See, here's our problem. Peter's problem then, my problem, your problem now. We don't actually know our hearts. We don't know our hearts. Here's one thing we can know about our hearts. Our hearts are prone to trouble. We know trouble. And trouble is hard on our hearts. Where are we going? How can we get there? What's the way? The sense of loss in this moment was so great that we really need to stop and just understand that these 12, they're not going to go back to anything in their life. When you experience Thousands of people being fed. When you experience healings of every kind that you can imagine, when you experience teaching and a description of a kingdom that's so great, you're not going to go back and just fish. You're not going to like say, well, it was a great three years and go back and start tech collecting taxes again. I mean, they have no idea where they're going to go and what they're going to do. It is crushing. And Jesus' first words were this. Hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. I don't know what your favorite translation is. If you've got a message version of the Bible or a New Living Translation you downloaded to your device. Uh, this, my Bible that I, I read from and put my notes in is the ESV. But most of our Bibles have like little headings to help us. Most translations would simply say the heading above this section of thought in this war room would be this. Jesus comforts his followers. Jesus wants to comfort you. In the thickest, darkest, deepest, most troubling time of your life, Jesus says, that's the war room I want to be in. I want to be in it with you. And his first words to you in your stress is this, don't let your heart be troubled. He's got ways to how you cannot let your heart be troubled. The first thing that Jesus points them to is heaven. Heaven is real. This very week, in Mrs. Coleman's first grade class, a student named Liam announced to all of the kids, I'm going to get the quote exactly right. There was a lot of drama in the moment. Liam said, there is no diarrhea or vomiting in heaven. Now, it's a first grade classroom, and so, you know, it's, it's, it, his, his content is killing. I mean, the other boys are just loving this, okay? It's not exactly highbrow comedy, you know, it's... I don't always stoop to that level, but Liam knows his audience, okay? And Liam is just crushing it with this. And what's crazy is nothing's changed from the time that we were little kids to the, whatever age you are now, this concept of heaven is something that we wrestle with. And in the thickest moment of his life, Jesus, and those of his followers, Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he took them to the idea of heaven. Thomas looks to Jesus in verse five. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know the way? The most famous words of Jesus, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Most famous words he ever said. In this moment, this thick war room moment, all of eternity would hinge on the, the teaching that's given right here in this moment. John wrote his gospel last. John re realized what everyone else wrote about the sequence of events. And so John gives a, a quarter of everything he writes to say this teaching is the most important. 
And Thomas here is like, we we don't know the way. See, Jesus is going to a very real place. The word here that he uses when he's describing, I'm going to go to a place, is a Greek word, monet. It's translated in John 14 too as uh, abode or 14.23, rooms, abiding places. There's a song, an old hymn that we would sing when I was growing up called Mansions in Glory. The word here is not mansions, okay? Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware that there's, there's a story. It's probably got a lot of truth to it. Uh, when, and it's a sad day, but when Brett Favre actually passed away, and it's not happened yet, but it, you know when it happens and he goes to the pearly gates and meets Peter, Peter's there to greet Brett Favre. And Brett Favre, story quarterback, played for the Green Bay Packers, and you know knows Jesus and lived that life, obedient, and he's welcomed into glory by St. Peter. And St. Peter takes Brett Favre, this famous quarterback, to his his dwelling place in eternity. And Brett's just overwhelmed. It's a mansion. It is. And it's got, they've already decked it out. It's got Green Bay flags for him there, Green Bay football team. And it's, it's, he's like, I'm, I'm speechless. And then, you know, Brett catches out of the corner of his eye, just on another hill, a little farther away, another mansion. But the, pro, there's, there's a, and he doesn't want to seem ungrateful, but it's a little awkward because it's a, I mean, it's a really, really big mansion. And Peter sees that Brett caught side of this other mansion, way bigger than his. The problem is it's just got Denver Bronco stuff all over it. <laughs> all, I mean, it's just Denver Bronco flags and you know, the colors, the blue and orange. And, you know, weird moment, you know, Brett's like, hey, Peter, I, I don't want to seem ungrateful because I love the Green Bay Palace. It's great. But like, how did John Elway get like such a bigger place than mine? Right. And Peter's like, hey, Brett, Right, you, you got it all wrong. That's, that's, not, that's not Elway's place. That's the father's house, okay? That's the father's house. Some of you are, you're gonna get that later at lunch today. I, I don't know. I do not know about our abiding places in heaven. I know that Jesus worked for about six days on earth and he's had 2,000 years to work on glory. I think he's gonna nail it. And I think it's going to be amazing. And in the thickest moment of our lives, Jesus looks to you and says, don't let your heart be troubled. And he says, here's where you got to look at. You got to look at heaven because you're going to go there. It's a very real place. And Jesus is building his church. But he's building a home for that church in heaven. You've got to know where, where, where people are at. Jesus is in heaven building glory. When we pray and say, God, I want you in my life, it's the spirit of God that comes and dwells inside of us. Obedience to baptism, the spirit of God comes and lives in us while Jesus prepares a place for us. The point here is that heaven is a real place. And Paul writes about this famously to a church in Thessalonica. Maybe he's thinking back to John's remembrance of this moment. Paul writes to this church and he says, Brothers and sisters, chapter 4, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to not know what's going on about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is our hope. In your deepest, darkest, most struggling moment, Jesus would look at you and say, do not be afraid, be comforted, and think about heaven. I think Liam actually was theologically correct. And the apostle John was caught up in heaven. He's the last of the apostles to die in a very old age. God wanted to give all of us a picture of heaven so that we would have something to pull us through. He said, I'm gonna give the church a glimpse of heaven. And Paul, John ran out of words trying to describe heaven to us. He couldn't describe about what was there. It's so great. He did this. He took a different approach. He did what Liam did. He said, I'm gonna tell you what's not there. What's, what's not going to be in heaven is death and sorrow and crying and pain and night. And Jesus said, fix your eyes on that. Acts 4.12 mimics the truth of this war room. The book of Acts is this history of how the church explodes. And it says in chapter 12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. One name, one name under heaven. This is really what Jesus said. I am the, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts chapter 4 says there is one name under heaven. In college, when, in, the, in the late 90s, when we were at Cincinnati Christian University, my wife and I, there was a song for about two years that was really, really popular. We drove it into the ground. And we'd get together at Student Union and Wednesday Night Vespers. We would sing this song. The song was called One Name. And we'd sing One Name Under Heaven by Which Men Must Be Saved. Forgiven of my sins, baptized in the water. Filled with the Holy Spirit, washed in the blood of the Lamb. We declare that, all of us together. And then we would sing this line. Because I'm free, I'm really free, my friends. I'm freed by the blood of the Lamb. We'd sing it slow and quiet. But there would be a rumbling that's come. Mainly because Pearl Jam was popular and we had to get some Eddie Vedder R Factor in. And we would end that song with, God's going to move this place. God's going to shake this place. God's going to turn this whole world upside down because he's doing that. And he did it in that war room through this one truth. Heaven is real. And we've got to fix our eyes on it. The next thing Jesus said, the very next verse, verse 7 was about the Father. He directs our comfort to knowing the Father. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip is the next guy up to bat. This is a conversation. We're getting blow by blow, line by line, what happened in the moment. And Philip is ushered to the front of the room. He speaks for everyone in the room. He speaks for us now. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? I mean, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. This answer, I mean, it really is, it's an answer for the 12 in the war room. 
but it is an answer for everyone who has ever believed that Jesus is the son of the living Christ. We live in very uncertain times. Dare I say, we live in the most uncertain times that have ever happened in the history of humanity. I mean, in all of history, there have been people that have come to another and say, did you hear what they said? And it's been a fabrication of truth. But in our day and age, you can see something and it's not even real. You can feel and experience something. There is a computer program called Unreal Engine 5. Now, if you're if you're a geek like my boys, um, you know what this is. It's a big deal to you, okay? I'll tell you on their website, Unreal Engine 5 is the world's most advanced real-time 3D creation tool for photoreal visuals and immersive experiences. So I, I grew up when we had just Nintendo, okay? And we had the game of all games to play in Nintendo, Zelda, okay? Now, if you were to walk into my living room circa 1992 and me and my brothers are playing Zelda, this quest game, uh, you would look at the screen and what you would see is just imagine Minecraft. And then if you were to be like really, like if you'd rubbed your eyes and you weren't seeing clearly, there's about four pixels of just four different colors to make up the character of Zelda. It's like a little bit of yellow, a little bit of brown, a little bit of green. And that is the character of Zelda. What you would not do is walk into my living room and be like, oh man, is that real? Because it didn't look real at all, okay? But this week, watching a, a YouTube video with my son about the new Matrix game in Keanu Reeves, is speaking and he's got a line. Keanu Reeves says, it's hard to tell what's real anymore. See this Unreal Engine 5, what it does is it can do something like take Keanu Reeves, but it's not Keanu. And Keanu Reeves then has a fake version of himself come up on the screen and start to talk to us. And you really can't tell the difference between fake Keanu Reeves and real Keanu Reeves. We live in uncertain times. I scrolled down through the comments on YouTube. Every other comment, one word stuck out. Scary. It's scary because the same thing is going on here that's going on in our lives. What do we believe in? What is true? What is real? How do we know what's authentic? And uncertainty gets our hearts troubled. Jesus shows up and says, don't be uncertain. Here's how. Here's how. Know the Father. And someone steps up and is like, well, how, just show him to us, show him to us. You don't, you don't need to see him. You don't need to know exactly what Jesus looked like. You know why? Because you can hear everything that he ever said that impacts your life today. And you can see the miracles that he did. And in the Greek context here, the Greek context, and when Jesus asked this question, and he, he, looks at, he looks at Philip, and he's like, Philip, don't you know me? He's implying a yes from Philip. Philip, you know me. Philip, you remember when we did these things, you saw a withered hand, and then the hand was fixed, and you saw the man with leprosy, and then the man was real. Philip, if you were blind, and you just touched these things, and then you heard me say the crazy things I said, the works would substantiate that I am from the Father, and if you know me, you know the Father, Philip. We've got to know the Father. 141 times in John's gospel. One theme, one theme, and it's a theme for you today. If you're in uncertain times and your heart's troubled, John would say this, know the Father, know the Father, know the Father, over and over again. Comforting our hearts, we think of heaven, we know the Father, and the next thing Jesus says is in verse 12, very truly I tell you, 
Whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Little review here. Sometimes you hear the word of God and you're like, I've heard that before. That makes sense. No, no, no. Put it in context. It's just like you put your life in context. Here's what's happened. They're in the upper room, this war room. It is fleeting moments, and only Jesus knows this, fleeting moments before Jesus will be the one to say, Judas, you go and do what you're going to do. Jesus was the one that controlled the timeline because he sent Judas. Jesus knows where Caiaphas' house is. Jesus knows the garden he's going to. Jesus knows the moment he's going to be seized. He sets it into motion. These guys don't know, and in this moment, Peter's going to denounce me. One of you is a traitor and I'm leaving. Feel the weight of that. And then Jesus says this, Hey guys, everything's going to be great. Everything's about to get awesome. Do you see, this is a dramatic turn of events. What sounds like what's going to happen is everything's going to end and it's going to be the worst day ever and nothing's ever going to be good again. And Jesus says, no, you've got it wrong. Actually, everything is about to get amazing. And the very thing that you fear, the very thing that you're afraid of, the moments that are coming that your heart is petrified about, it's because of those things that everything is going to get amazing. You know, Jesus looks at these guys and he says, if you pray, I'll do anything you want. So he tells us today, this was this was about them. This was their experience. Real guys, real room, real place, real moment in history. It's about them, but it's for us today. Jesus says, think of heaven. Jesus says, know my father. And then Jesus says, you ask me, you pray, you communicate to me, you do anything, I'll do it. But here's the deal. We got to get in the room with these guys. We got to get in the room with these guys. Well, how do you, how do, you do that? You got to have their posture. When Jesus looks at them and he says, I'll do anything you ask. A lot of us would be like, sign me up. I've got a list today. We'll do this before lunch. You ready? But see, we got to have their posture. Can I tell you something about the 12 guys in the room? They, they were scattered throughout the world and they were all killed for saying, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And I will not denounce him. We got to get in that posture. See, when we're building his kingdom, his promises, my favor is upon you. My favor is upon you. No, like theologically, like according to the word of God, our, his favor is not on everybody all the time. It's not. Here, here's here's the, the algorithm. Here's the, here's the recipe. When we are united with Christ because we've surrendered our lives to him and we say that he's the Lord and we proclaim that he's the Lord and we're obedient and keep his commandments and, and follow him, here's where, here's, then his favor is upon us because we're building his kingdom. He'll do anything we ask. When we build our own kingdom, that's not our promise. And his favor's not on us. Matter of fact, Paul writes that we're enemies of God. Before we believe that Jesus is the son of the living God, we are this. We're in a state of opposition against God. That's our true state. We're fighting him. And in that moment, because here's what's going to happen. These guys, you're like, oh, so I got to be like these guys and go, if Jesus is going to ever answer a prayer, I've got to like be ready to go to the death for him. Well, yeah, if you're going to build his kingdom. But here's the thing that Jesus knows. Get this. It's encouraging. This is encouraging. In a few minutes, they're all going to run. Imagine this. He's giving them this information. 
He is about to set a series of events into place that will change the history of humanity forever. And Jesus is putting all of his cards, all of everything on these guys. And he's saying, don't be sad right now. Be comforted. And Jesus is trying to say, don't be troubled. And he knows that they're going to leave him. They're going to abandon him. They're going to run away from him. But you know what he still does? He brings his comfort. And that should encourage you because here's what that means. If you're in a place of opposition against Jesus, you're the one fighting. He's not fighting you. You're fighting him. He stands at the door of your heart and knocks and says, let me in. I want to comfort you. Let me in. I want to love you. Let me in. I want to forgive you. I want to make you sing that you're free and talk about my favor and actually be in a place of reconciliation. We are either reconciled or we are not. And it all comes down to the very end here. When Jesus tells them that, he closes it with these verses. If you love me, keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. When we pray, we pray in the spirit of God. When we pray, we pray with the knowledge that the Holy Spirit, who is one with the Father, takes our concerns and ushers them right into the Holy of Holies, the throne room of heaven, and God looks at our problem, looks at our life, and is fully aware of everything going on better than you can articulate it. That is what Jesus is saying. I'm sending the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Man, some of you just, some of you need to hear that. I need to hear that. You know when I need to hear that? When I wake up. I need to hear that sometime around lunch. I need to hear that when I go to bed. I need to hear it all day long. You are not orphans. He will not leave you. These are the words of Jesus in the war room of your life. In the thickest, darkest, hardest corner, when you've been backed into it, Jesus looks at you and says, think of heaven, pray, know my father and know this. If you accept it, I will give you my Holy Spirit and I will not leave you as an orphan. Man, before long, verse 19, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Does anyone have a growing and clear picture of Jesus? Emily said today in the tub, she said, I've got a growing and clear picture of Jesus and I'm spending time with him. And since he's come into my life, nothing has been the same and I have to be obedient to this. Do you have a growing clear picture of him? The next verse, on that day, Jesus says, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I too will love them and show myself to them. And if you are in Christ today, is there something inside of you that just needs to say, I realize it today. I'm here today because I want to realize it in a more fuller way. That's why we seal every service with a song so we can look at one another and say, we realize it. We realize it. There might, you might be sitting here in this moment today, though, and say this. I've not realized it. I'm not in him, but I want to get in him. This is an invitation to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Church, I want to invite you to stand. And we're going to go before him and declare his goodness, declare his kindness, declare the way he has treated us 
While we were against him, he has been for us. He is pursuing you. And the war room of your life, Jesus Christ is coming for you to bring you comfort. Come on, church. Let's declare who he is.